Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. I'm going to read two passages of scripture this morning and then Phil will come forward and bring us our message for today. The first of our Bible readings is from Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14 and verse... 17 through to 24. The words of the reading will be on the screen, but if you'd like to follow along, either in the Bible, in the seats around you, there that's on page 20. And then we'll jump into the New Testament and look at Hebrews chapter 7. This is Genesis chapter 14 beginning at verse 17 through to verse 24. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat at Kedor Laoma and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread of your or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anna, Eshkol and Mamre take their share. If you turn forward in your Bible... Uh, We're going to read Hebrews chapter 7 and the entire chapter, so verses 1 through to 28. Again, the words on the screen, if you're following along, one of the Bibles in our seats, it's on page 1868. This is Hebrews chapter 7 verse 1. The pastor uh, who writes or preached this book of Hebrews has been building up to this moment for a quite a long time, introducing us to this person, Melchizedek. And so from chapter 7, verse 1, as we continue in our series, True and Better. Chapter 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abram, Abraham apportioned a tenth of part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, 
though these are also, dis- are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by the one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that the Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar." For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, our former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will never change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus a guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save us to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Now, the uh, the passage that we're looking from at this morning through uh, through the book of Hebrews is very clear. I don't really need to get up and say anything. We're all okay with with Melchizedek. We've got a really good grip on everything that's going on with this guy Melchizedek. I don't normally do this, but I'm going to do it. Jacko often does this. He gets people to turn around and just just talk to people around them. Can you just do that for a minute and just 
Tell the person next to you or behind you or around you everything you know about Melchizedek. No one's moving. I thought that might be the case. And that's pretty much as much as I knew about Melchizedek. Um, but the Lord's gracious and he's good. And there's, there's actually lots in here. And I think as we look at the passage this morning and as we, we listen to what the pastor has to say, the, 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 the guy that wrote Hebrews, I think our hearts are going to be warmed. I think we're going to be energised. I think we're going to come closer to the Lord. That's the, that's the idea. And if we can come just a little bit closer, that'll be great and that'll put a smile on my face. So we've been going through the book of Hebrews. Um, we're looking at chapter 7. Before we start, how about we close our eyes, we aim our hearts upward and let's, let's ask our Lord to, to bless our time. Our Lord and our Father, we ask through Jesus our Saviour that by your Spirit who dwells in his people that you'd open our hearts, that you'd open our ears so that we'd hear you speak to us. Lord, this morning I pray that you revive us, you excite us and you cause us to see the wonder and grace of who you are and what you've done in rescuing your people, your children. Lord, draw us near, we pray, as we hear your words. Amen. So I just want to remind us this morning um, that this letter to the Hebrews is a sermon. Um, Has anyone had a look at, weeks ago I posted a thing um, on Slack where it's a video of a guy who preaches the book of Hebrews by just simply reading it by memory. Has anyone, did anyone get a chance to have a look at that? What I might do when I get home this afternoon, I might post it back up on, on Slack again under, I don't know, what's the best place to put it? Announcements, equip, probably under a, the, the subheading of equip. This guy basically has memorised the book of Hebrews. He's a pastor of a church over in America somewhere and he, he preaches it by just, just proclaiming it word for word, doesn't add anything to it, doesn't say anything about it, just reads it by memory. It's the most amazing thing. Um, so I'd encourage you, um, you may or may not get anything out of this morning. If you go home and you, and you watch that video, your heart will be warmed, I can guarantee it. So this was a sermon. And it was proclaimed to a group of Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians. Probably somewhere around 63, 64, 65 AD. Um, the temple in Jerusalem was still standing. The Romans hadn't demolished it at that point. The Jewish believers, so the the Jews who'd become Christians, were facing serious persecution for their faith in their Messiah, Jesus. And some were slipping back into the rituals and ceremonies of Judaism, which which they'd moved out of, sliding back into it. And some were being tempted to abandon their trust and their hope in Jesus and go back to the old ways of Judaism. Judaism. And the whole message of the preacher of the book of Hebrews was, don't do that. Why would you do that? Jesus is so, so, so much better. 
Jesus is so much greater. There's no hope for you in the old way. Now that Jesus has come, he is the way. He's the only way, the only hope, the only true way to life. So going back, if you're a Jewish Christian that's come out of Judaism to follow Jesus, going back is going back to death and hopelessness and life without God. So don't do that. Why would you do that? So he's, he's preaching to Hebrews, Jews that would have been raised probably going to the synagogue, Sabbath after Sabbath, after Sabbath, after Sabbath, perhaps going to Jerusalem, to the temple, engaging in the ancient worship of Yahweh that had been handed down for generation to generation to generation. They would have, their whole lives, followed the way of worship that had been written in the scriptures themselves. Worship prescribed by God in his words. They would have brought animals for sacrifice according to the law. They were following the way of Abraham, their ancestor. They were following the way of Moses. But these Hebrews had become believers in Jesus, whose call was to come to him, to, to draw near to Yahweh through him. Jesus' call wasn't keep following the rules and the traditions and the rituals of your past. It was to come to him as the true way to Yahweh, to God. So these, Hebrew, these, these Christians who had been Hebrews, they've seen in Jesus their long-awaited Messiah. As you read through the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, um, the prophets talk continually about this Messiah who will one day rescue his people. So these Christians have seen in Jesus the fulfilment of those prophecies. Their long-awaited Messiah. They've been waiting for a Messiah to come. God himself coming down from heaven, taking on human flesh who would live a perfect life and sacrifice himself for the sins of the people. The temple, the sacrifices, the rituals and all the rites of Judaism had all been fulfilled in Jesus. And they recognised that and they saw that and their lives were changed and they were born again by the Spirit of God into this new kingdom. But these believers were still living in the real world, in their community, amongst family and friends. Many of them, maybe most of their community had rejected Jesus and most of them remained in Judaism. Persecution was great. In some areas, Christians were hunted down. Some were beaten. Some had their homes and property taken away or destroyed. Many had lost their lives. So there was a great temptation for these Hebrew Christians to go back to Judaism. The Jews weren't persecuted like the Christians had been. Up to that point, the Jews, while they were a little bit annoying to the Romans, weren't that big a problem. 
and they weren't suffering the persecution. But the Christians were. The Christians were on the bad side of the Romans and they were on the bad side of the Jews. They were on everyone's bad side. So there was this, there was this persecution and if they could just go back to Judaism, maybe they could escape some of the persecution. If they had just moved back to the old ways, life would be just so much, so much easier. These Christians had been rejected by their community. They'd been rejected by their families. They'd been rejected by their friends. So they started to think, perhaps we've made a mistake abandoning the old ways. Maybe Jesus isn't the only way. Or maybe we can have Jesus and the old way as well. Maybe we can have both. I remember um, quite a few years ago now, months after I first became a Christian, um, I'd been living in Sejuna, I came back to Adelaide, um, met up with all my old mates, and I told all my friends about the Saviour. I was so excited about this, this new thing I'd discovered. I couldn't believe that no one else knew about it. I was the only one that knew about this Jesus. So I was just telling everybody. Um, one of my best friends at the time um, was absolutely sure I'd gone insane. He was a guy who a couple of years earlier had been involved in everything that they'd been in. I was an atheist and, well, actually it wasn't anything. I I wouldn't have even called myself an atheist. It was just a nothingist. Um, And I'd gone off to Sejuna to live. Um, Before that, we would just do everything that normal Aussie non-Christian atheists would get up to. I'll leave that to your imagination. So when I came back to Adelaide and I started talking about this Jesus, he thought I'd just gone insane. It's just ridiculous. What are you doing? So he decided that it was his job to bring me back from this Christian stuff. He did some research and he presented me with this big thick book which is supposed to disprove Christianity. And it was designed to bring crazy brainwashed Christians back to the loving arms of atheism. I'd been a Christian for about, I don't know, two months, three months. Anyway, I read the book because he was a good friend um, and I didn't really know um, whether there was going to be an issue or not. I'd met God, I'd heard God speak to me through his word. So I didn't have any doubt that God existed because I'd met him. But this book was there to challenge me. So I read the book and I... I've got to confess, it really shook me for a while. But it made me look deeper. And it made me research. And it drove me deeper into God's word. And I've read lots of books since. I've listened to lots of lectures by atheists and other religions. And I reckon I've heard almost any argument against this book, every argument against the existence of God and every argument against Jesus. I probably haven't heard them all, but I've heard a lot of them. And I've got to tell you, we're all good. Everything they throw at us, we can stand firm. All the arguments and proofs can be answered confidently. 
So if you're in a situation where this is happening and you've got doubts and concerns about the truthfulness of what we believe as Christians, I tell you, you can stand confident in Jesus. I've looked at so many of the arguments and all of the answers are found in Jesus. And we don't have to be concerned. But it's good to get the answers. I reckon Jewish Christians of the first century would have been surrounded by people like my mate. He thought I was nuts. They thought the Christians' families and friends would have thought that they were nuts. They were crazy. They were insane. Why are they throwing away everything for this Jesus? And I think their friends and their family just wanted them back. My mate had good intentions. He wanted the best for me. He thought I'd gone insane. He wanted to fix me. And I think a lot of the Jewish Christians would have been surrounded by people that had very good intentions to bring them back. They would have taken out their scriptures, the same scriptures that we find in the Old Testament, and they would have used those scriptures to try to prove that Jesus cannot be the Messiah. The Messiah was supposed to be a reigning, victorious king. Jesus was a defeated, crucified nobody. So here we have the author of Hebrews preaching to these Hebrew Christians. And he lays out the reasons why they shouldn't and they just couldn't abandon the Saviour. And he picks up his Bible. So the pastor that's writing this book, or that this book, I guess, was copied from the sermon, he picks up his Bible, the same Bible the Jews used, and he uses the Hebrew Scriptures to demonstrate that Jesus is not only the promised Messiah, but Jesus is the whole point of the Jewish faith. So why go back? The Jewish scriptures, the history of the Jewish people was all directed towards and finds its fulfilment in this very Jesus who was crucified but was also risen from the dead. So the pastor says being a Christian isn't denying the Jewish faith. It's the fulfilment of the Jewish faith. Everything in the Jewish scriptures is fulfilled in the Messiah Jesus. The Old Covenant is full of signs and shadows all pointing towards Jesus. So there's a sign in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. Why go back to the signpost when you've already met the person that the signpost is pointing towards? Why stay in the shadow when the reality of the shadow is right there in front of you? So here in chapter 7, the preacher picks up just one of the arguments that was brought against Christians, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. It's an argument that might just make someone second-guess their newfound faith in Jesus, and it goes like this. So here's the argument that the Jewish Christians would have been facing. How does your Jesus fit into Yahweh's system of worship? How does he fit into the system that Yahweh himself instituted and recorded in his words. How does your Jesus fit into the priesthood and the sacrifices commanded in the law? 
How does he fit? We know that God appointed Aaron, Moses' brother, who was from the tribe of Levi, to be priest. He was chosen to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, to be the one who would be the mediator, the go-between, standing between God and man. Aaron was the mediator. We know that. It's clearly written in Scripture. Right? That would have been the argument. So Aaron was to be priest, and Aaron's sons would take up that role when Aaron dies. And their sons would take it on, and their sons after them, and their sons after them, and their sons after them would, would take on this role of being the mediators, of being the priests. It's a generation of Levites. People from the tribe of <clears throat> Levi were appointed by God, very clear in Scripture, for this role. And only people from the tribe of Levi could take on that role. God has appointed this. It was God's idea. It was clearly written in his unchangeable word. So who is this Jesus? He wasn't a priest. Could never be a priest because he wasn't from Levi. He was obviously from Judah. The Christians, you Christians, you say that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. He was born in Bethlehem, the town of David, who was from the tribe of Judah. So he's not a priest. You guys admit that he wasn't, he wasn't a Levi. He couldn't be a priest. Christian, you believe that Jesus stands as mediator between God and man, yeah? Well, he can't do that. That's the role of a priest. You can't just take up the role of a priest. Not anyone can just take up the role of the priest. I know that King, King Saul tried to offer sacrifices as a priest and he was uh, cut down as a result of it. The, 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 the kingdom was taken away from Saul because he tried to be a priest. You can't do that. So Jesus can't just step in and say, hey, forget all that other stuff. Look at me. I'm the mediator between God and man. You can't do that. So if he can't be a priest... You don't have a priest. If you're following Jesus who claims to be a priest and he can't be a priest, then you don't have a priest. Make sense? So if you don't have a priest, you don't have a mediator. You've got no one between you and God. If you've got no one between you and God, you can't get to God. You've got no one to sacrifice to atone for your sins. You're outside of God's way. What are you doing? Right? Well, the preacher says... No, it's not right. It sounds good, but it's not right. There's a massive hole in that argument. It assumes that the Levitical priesthood, the one that came through Levi, was the only priesthood. It's a whopping big assumption. It assumes that the priesthood was meant to last forever. It assumes that the sacrifices in the temple were meant to last forever. But none of it was meant to last forever, the preacher says, through this book. It was all there instituted by God, that's true. So the Levites were there as the priests, appointed to be priests. They were appointed to offer sacrifices. The temple was there for a place where they could go and meet God through the priests and offer the sacrifices. It's all true, it was all there. But it was all designed to point to something else, to point to something greater. So while the, all of this was true, all of this was happening, and the Jews were, were excitedly getting involved in this worship, 
That wasn't the point of it all. The point of it all was to ultimately point the people to something so much greater than what they were, what they were doing. Something greater that would last forever. It was all meant to be a sign pointing to the one ultimate priest, the one ultimate sacrifice, the one person, Jesus, the true temple, the true dwelling place, place of God. In chapter 7, the pastor who's preaching this sermon says here, let me show you something. He picks up his Old Testament and he opens it up to the very first book. You don't have to go very far. Very first book, the book of Genesis. And he goes to chapter 14, back to the very start of the Jewish faith, to Abraham himself, the father of the Jews, the father of the people that are trying to bring you back. The Jews had no one greater to look back to. The author, or the preacher to, to the Hebrews, picked a fantastic subject for his, for his sermon. Abraham, there's no one better that he could have picked on to talk about this whole thing. Because everybody loved Abraham. They saw themselves as the children of Abraham. He was the father of their faith. And he points them to something that happened in the life of Abraham. Before Aaron, before the Levites, before Levi himself had been born. I don't know if you know your, the timeline of the Bible, but you've got Abraham, who was the father of Jacob, who was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Levi and Judah and the other, the other tribes. So Abraham was well before Levi. Abraham was his great-great-grandpa. Sorry, his great-grandpa. So the writer takes the people to a thing that happened in Abraham's life before Levi, before the whole priesthood started, before there were any Jews. There weren't any Jews at this time. In fact, at this time, Abraham wasn't even known as Abraham. He was known as Abram. God hadn't brought about his new covenant with Abraham at that point, so he was still known by his, by his old name, Abram. It wasn't until a few chapters later or a few years later that he actually became Abraham. So at this point, Abram had been called of God, had left his home, homeland in Ur of the Chaldees, and had moved closer towards Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem actually itself didn't even exist. It was probably called Salem back then. And he was living in a place called Hebron. So Abram had heard that his nephew Lot... You've heard of Lot? Had been captured in battle. So back then it was all just warring tribes everywhere, taking over everyone's land and killing each other and moving into other people's property and all that stuff. That was happening a lot back then. It still happens today. Anyway, he'd heard that his nephew Lot had been captured. So Abram took his men, defeated the captors, went after him, rescued his son Lot. And let me read from Genesis chapter 14 so we can get that up on the screen. So this is, he's just finished rescuing his nephew. After his return, so he was talking about Abram, after his return from the defeat of Cheddar Lamea, I don't know how you pronounce that, I think that's how, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom 
went out to meet him at the valley of Shever, that is, the King's Valley. And where's that? Well, it's probably around where Jerusalem is now. And Melchizedek, here we go, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of, most, of God most high. And Melchizedek blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's the story of Melchizedek. This guy appears out of nowhere and then disappears. And in fact, if that little bit in the Bible was taken out, you probably wouldn't have even noticed because it, it then continues on into the story of what happens with the other kings. So there's just this little bit in there written thousands of years ago. So this guy appears out of nowhere and then he disappears. You don't hear about him, anything about him at all in the Bible until a thousand years later when King David writes a psalm prophesying about the prophesying about the Messiah to come. Psalm 110. King David writes this under the inspiration of, of God. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then that's it. That's the whole of the Old Testament story about Melchizedek. You don't hear about him at all. So there are only two sections of scripture, and what I've just read is all there is. But for the preacher, they're critical to the whole story of salvation. The preacher reminds the Hebrew Christians through picking up that passage in the Old Testament, this all happened before the Jewish system. This all happened before there were any Jews. You're thinking about maybe going back to Judaism? Well, this all happened before there was any Judaism. So what's happening here? Before there was any Levitical priesthood, before there was any temple, before there was any law, before there was the sacrificial system, before anything Jewish, before any of it, there was a priest, a high priest called Melchizedek. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 7. There we go. So Jacko read this earlier. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, Melchizedek, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. His very name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. And he is king of Salem. 
So he wasn't just some random, random guy. This guy was something. He was a king, and he was a king of Salem, which has probably became Jerusalem later down the track. And Abraham was blessed by this guy Melchizedek. And, this, and the argument goes from the preacher, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. The one that does the blessing is greater than the one who receives the blessing, is the argument. So Melchizedek must be greater than Abraham. But you Hebrew Christians, or the people that are trying to convert you back into Judaism, say that Abraham is the greatest. Well, here we've got someone that was greater than Abraham. And Abram gave a tenth of all he had to Melchizedek. Now the Jews knew that they had to give tithes or 10% of everything that they had to the Levites to support the priests and to support the temple and to support the whole sacrificial system. They, that was part of the Jewish faith. They, had, they were supposed to give a tenth. But here in Genesis, the Levites hadn't even been born yet. But Levi's, sorry, Levi's great-grandpa... Abram gave a tithe to Melchizedek. It's kind of like Abram tithed to Melchizedek on behalf of all of his descendants. That's what the writer to the Hebrews says. Including the priests, the Levites themselves. So it's almost as if Abram, when he gave a tenth of everything, he was actually doing it on behalf of the Levites, who would later to receive a tenth from everybody. Okay, so there was a great high priest before the Levites. Most of the Jewish Christians maybe didn't even think about that. What's that got to do with Jesus? So what? There was this priest. Don't know much about him. Name was Melchizedek. So what? Well, the preacher picks up something really unusual in the story of Melchizedek. Now, you might not have picked it up so much as you're reading through, um, but a Jew would have picked this up. The, the story is written in the book of Genesis, the book of genealogies. Has anyone tried to read through the book of Genesis from start to finish? It's really interesting. Abraham begot Isaac. Abraham breathed his last and he died. Isaac begot Jacob. Isaac breathed his last and he died. Jacob begot Levi and Judah and Benjamin and the others. And Jacob breathed his last, and he died. Noah begot, Methuselah begot, Adam begot, 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 begot. It's the book of the genealogies. It's the history of the, of the people. When we get to the story of Melchizedek, there's no record of that. There's no record of his birth. There's no record of his death. And this is in the book of records, in the book of genealogies, in the book of Genesis. It's very odd. But for the preacher to the Hebrews, that's the point. There is no genealogy. He wasn't from the line of Abram. And we know for sure he wasn't from the line of Levi. So how was he a priest? How did he get to be a priest? 
If he wasn't from the, from the birth line of the priests, how did he become a priest? Well, he didn't do it through physical lineage like the Levites. It came from a direct call of God. It's a priesthood inaugurated before the law, before the Levitical priesthood. It's a priesthood before the Jewish people even existed. So, the writer of the Hebrews says, it's possible to be a priest without being of the tribe of Levi. You want me to abandon, you want us to abandon Jesus because he can't be a priest? Well, maybe he can. Because there was a priest. Priests don't have to come from the line of Levi. So perhaps Jesus could be a priest. But he would have to be one according to the order of Melchizedek, not the order of Levi. Does that make sense? You need to go back to the priests. Jesus can't be a priest because he's not a Levite. The argument is, well, you know what? He doesn't have to be a Levite. He could be under the order of Melchizedek. That was before the, Le- the, the Levitical system. It was before and it was greater than the Levitical system. And this is where Psalm 110 comes in. So can we pull that up? The Lord, see where it's got Lord in all capitals there? And it's different to the word Lord at the end of the sentence? That's because the word Lord in all capitals is an English way of writing the word Yahweh. So it's not, some, some transactions actually put the word Yahweh in there, but this is talking about the divine name of God. So God himself, Yahweh, says to my Lord, well, King David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So he's talking about the coming Messiah. The Messiah is going to bring everybody to his feet. He's going to be a great king, He's going to be the Lord. He's going to be ruling over all. So he's talking about the Messiah. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Messiah, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, Messiah would have to be a king. Well, Jesus qualifies. He's from the kingly tribe of Judah, so he could be a king, it's possible. And he would have to be able to live forever to remain as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, Jesus qualifies. He rose victorious from the grave. He's alive. And he can't be killed again. He lives forever. So Jesus, that you want, that, that your, your friends and your relatives want you to abandon, actually meets the qualifications as a priest. Yes. So, Hebrew Christians, you are staying faithful to the scriptures by following the Messiah. You're not abandoning your faith. You're not abandoning your Jewish heritage. You're actually following the Jewish heritage. You're actually following the Messiah the king, the high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, the one that was prophesied. And your priest is greater than the Levitical priesthood. This priesthood, the Melchizedek priesthood, 
was before the Jewish people even, even existed. So it's for all people. It's not just for the Jewish people. Can't be for just the Jewish people because there weren't any Jewish people. And it's a priesthood that will last forever. He can never die, so his priesthood can never die. And this priest that you have now begun to worship and begin to follow is perfect and is sinless and there's nothing to prevent him, him as priest coming into the presence of God. And this priest that you've abandoned Judaism to follow comes with a perfect spotless sacrifice. His own body, sinless, without blemish, the ultimate perfect sacrifice guaranteed to be accepted by God. So this is just so much better than the Jewish system. So much better, so much greater. So why would you go back? Why would you want to have a sinful priest? You guys know the priests. You, you guys have been to the, to the synagogue. You guys have been to the temple. You've seen the stuff that the priests get up to. They rob and they steal from people. Um, there were some good ones, but there were some shockers. You know them. They're sinful, just like you. And they give a sacrifice that can't wash away your sin. They bring a sacrifice that can't bring you into the presence of God. Why go back to that when you can have a perfect, indestructible, eternal, sinless saviour who has been presented by God to be your great high priest who brings his own life before the altar of God to be the sacrifice, to be your sacrifice, a perfect once-for-all-time sacrifice. Why go back? You got, this is just so much better. So let's go to Hebrews 7, verse 26. So the preacher, having laid out that Jesus is a priest, but he's not a Lev- Levitical priest, he's a, a priest under the order of Melchizedek. So he's laid all that out. He's cleared the air. It's okay to worship Jesus. It's okay to follow this new priest. Then he says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So it was a sacrifice that can actually wash away the guilt you have before God. And it's a sacrifice that can actually lead you into the very presence of God. It's all there in Jesus. He stands as the priest, the great mediator between God and man, the God-man. Standing between God and man, bringing us into his presence through his once-for-all sacrifice and keeping us forever in the very presence of God himself. Something the priests could never do. They offered sacrifices, but first of all, before they could offer sacrifices, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves before they could offer sacrifices for the people. This priest, this Jesus, didn't have to do that. He was perfect, he was holy, he was blameless, he was spotless, he was sinless. 
he could offer up his own life as a sacrifice to bring us into the very presence of God himself. Let's go back to verse 23. The former priests, so this is the Levites, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Well, that kind of makes sense. A bit hard to keep your job when you're dead. So there were many of them. They reckon there was about 83 different high priests from the time of Levi through to, to this time. Former priests, there were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, as Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Didn't die. Can't die. Won't die. It's impossible for him to give up his priesthood because he can't die. So the priests of the Jews kept dying and no surprise, they had to keep on being replaced over and over and over again. Jesus needs no replacement. Verse 24. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, because of this, because he lives forever, because he can hold his priesthood permanently, consequently, he is able to save. He's able to save. And he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And only those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. The Jewish priests may have been willing to save the people, but they were never able to save the people. Jesus, our great high priest, is both willing and able to save. And save to the uttermost. There's a word we don't use very much. Uttermost. Can you put that into a sentence for me? I can't. <laughs> I love that phrase, save to the uttermost. Utter, completely, completely save us. Full and complete and perfect salvation. Everything needed from start to finish is provided by Jesus. He doesn't just start us off in salvation and leave the rest to us. He brings me into God's presence and he keeps me in God's presence. He saves me to the uttermost. I don't save myself. He saves me and he saves me completely. He brings me into God's presence and he keeps me in God's presence. When I stray, he always lives to make intercession for me. He looks at me and he knows me and he loves me deeply, which is amazing. No priest ever did that. As you see in the news, was it yesterday? Yesterday's advertiser, front page. An Orthodox priest um, has been caught. Um, I won't tell you what he was caught doing. It's on the front page of the paper. Um, you didn't love me. You had nothing to offer for me. But Jesus, he loves me and he loves me deeply and he knows my sin and he knows my failure. He knows my straying. He knows that I'm disloyal and I've got a distracted heart and yet he loves me deeply anyway. He ever lives to make intercession for me. 
he ever lives to make intercession for you. Val, you. Only you. No, everybody. (laughs) He makes intercession for all of us. If you're a believer, if you've drawn near to God through Jesus, he always lives to make intercession, to pray for you. How great would it be if you knew that Jesus, see that door there? If you knew that Jesus was just on the other side of that door praying for you, how great would that be? Well, he is. He is actually here praying for us. And he's taken it upon himself to save me and to adopt me into his care, to fill me with his, with his spirit and to encourage me, to place me in his family with you guys, with other dearly loved children, my brothers and my sisters, to love me and guide and encourage me. He's adopted me into the family and we're all in this together and we're all deeply loved by our saviour. How great is that? Why would you go back to the other stuff? And ultimately, he's going to bring me to eternal life. He's given me eternal life now, but one day I'm going to see it fulfilled. When he comes back in glory and takes me up to be with him, or if he takes me early and leaves you guys here, one day he's going to bring us all back together again for eternity. That's his plan. We're going to be saved forever, saved to the uttermost. What a great and a wonderful truth that is. What a glorious and what a magnificent gospel we have. And brothers and sisters, none of us came from, I don't think any of us came from the Jewish system, did we? But we all came from somewhere. We all came from somewhere that is less than what we have in Jesus. And we all came from somewhere that continually tries to draw us back in. And we've all got things, we've all got people in our lives, we've all got Netflix that tries to draw us back. We've got all sorts of stuff in our lives that try to draw us back to our life before Jesus. But now we have Jesus, who's so much greater than everything, so much more glorious than everything, who's able to and willing to save us to the uttermost. What a glorious, magnificent gospel. We're going to come to the Lord's table. Now, I don't know if when you were reading, when we were reading through Genesis chapter 14, it says that Melchizedek brought bread and wine to Abram. Remember that? I've got no idea whether that's got anything to do with this. But I kind of like the idea that he brings bread and wine. In the Lord's Supper, in the Lord's table, the Lord brings bread and wine to us. And he brings it to us to remind us of what he's done for us. So this, the table, the Lord's table, is all about us remembering this great and glorious gospel, this great and glorious salvation that he's brought for us. It's to remind us that we've been saved to the uttermost, all who drew near to him. So I'd encourage us this morning, um, please come forward in a second to take the, the, the bread and the wine, and let's just rejoice in the fact that we've been saved to the uttermost. Jacko and Adele, would you like to hand over the, the Lord's Supper? Just as they're coming, I'm going to finish off with one little thing. Come up, guys. This is from the end of chapter 6. We who have fled for refuge, we have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, behind everything that keeps us from God, where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek. Let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you were the ultimate sacrifice. We're so grateful that you ever live to pray for us, to stand in the gap between us and God, to make intercession for us. We're so, so grateful for your sacrifice of your body on the cross. We're so, so grateful for the sacrifice of your blood that was poured out for us. A perfect sacrifice that doesn't have to be presented over and over and over again. Lord Jesus, you've brought us to God because you're the perfect high priest. You're the perfect and you're the permanent high priest who stands as our mediator. And we're so grateful that you save us to the uttermost. So this morning as we come and take the bread and the wine, remind us and renew us and fill us with life because you ever live for us. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.